everyone. You're listening to Ed Young Radio, Ed Pastors Fellowship Church, and we want to thank you for listening with us. These next few minutes together can change your life, and you can always hear more by visiting edyoung.com. Enjoy the message. God, you brought each of us here for a reason. Lord, all of us have missed the mark. We've messed up. We've sinned. And we admit that to you. We admit the obvious to you, God. But Lord, we know that you have the power and the strength to bring about change. And God, I simply look forward in my life and I look forward for every life here for for the change, for the transformation that's going to take place as a result of our time together today. So God, right now, I give you my voice box, my personality, my preparation, and use all of it to convey your message of truth to every one of us. And I thank you now for what's going to happen as a result of today's time. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Last week we launched into a brand new series of talks on the Ten Commandments called First and Ten. Why? Because at the first of the year, we think it's vital, it's paramount for us to get a read on the ten directives, the ten priorities for successful living. In our first session, the commandment was pretty straightforward. I mean, the stuff was easy to grasp. God said in this first precept, you will have no other gods before me. And we talked about selfism and possessionism and knowledgeism and all the other isms. We understood that we're to prioritize God as God. We're to worship Him as the true and living Lord because we discovered if we don't, if we put any object or any personality in the slot reserved for God, we're going to be disappointed in this life and in the next. In other words, the other gods, little g, don't have the octane, the RPMs to help you and to help me when we need it the most. So I understood right up front the first commandment, and I think you did too. But the second commandment, the one we're going to talk about today, seems a little bit archaic and irrelevant in our high-tech times. Let's read it together. You can follow me on the side screens. Exodus chapter 20. I'll read verses 4 and 5. This is God speaking. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. I don't know about you, but I've not had the burning desire this week to melt down my wedding ring or to carve some image on my garage and bow down and worship it. I mean, 3,000 years ago, God, I I can dig it. I, I can see it. I understand how your people might have struggled with this one, but right here? Come on, God. And some of you are thinking while I'm explaining this, you're going, oh boy, this is gonna be an easy week for me. No problem. I can like run through my mental calendar. Let me see, I have an appointment on Monday and Wednesday's pretty rugged, but Friday I can hit the golf course if the weather's okay. And and others here who are single are going, this is pretty cool. I can check out some eligible 
candidates to date. Uh, this will be nice. Second commandment. I've not had the desire to make anything or mold anything or melt down anything or, or, or carve something and then bow down and worship it. But before you go off in Never Never Land, listen, because this second commandment, ladies and gentlemen, comes dangerously close to the warning track of your life and in mine. It gets up close and personal to some serious junk that we're carrying around. This commandment challenges us, confronts us, and really gets in our face. During this series, we've said we're going to use one grid to explain the commandments. We're going to look, first of all, at the meaning of every commandment. What does it really mean? Then we're going to follow the meaning up by the mentality. Uh, what was God's rationale? Let's get in God's psyche. Let's get in his thoughts to see why he came up with this commandment. And then we're going to look at the implications. The so what. Or you could look at that grid and say, the what, the why, and the how. We've just read the second commandment. Let's think about the meaning of it. What does the second commandment mean? What was God driving at when he said, you shall not make for yourself a carved image? What is all that about? God is simply prohibiting the worship of anything we make, mold, or imagine. And God was driving at this because God knew and knows in his sovereignty that anything we use to try to mirror the majesty of, his, of our maker is going to fall miserably short of communicating the totality of God's being. So God's saying, don't minimize the majesty of your maker. Don't even go there. Don't even try to make something, mold something, or think something up that communicates the essence and the nature of God because it will not and cannot work. That is what this commandment means. To show you what I'm talking about, let me ask you an exciting question. How many of you have ever seen the Grand Tetons. If you've seen the Grand Tetons in person, lift your hand. I'm talking about the beautiful mountain range in Wyoming. Keep your hands up. Be, be proud of it. I mean, I saw the Grand Tetons. Okay, if you did not lift your hand, if you've never seen the Grand Tetons, raise your hand. Oh, this is going to be great. Oh, ever, look at the hands going up. Now, the Grand Tetons can be seen on the side screens. We have a little picture of the Grand Tetons. Gorgeous mountains. That's for those here who have not seen the Grand Tetons. But I've even got one better for you. Because I've seen the Grand Tetons, because this summer I stood in Wyoming and then saw those majestic mountains bursting through the bold blue skies of Wyoming, I'm going to make you a model of the mountains, of the Grand Tetons, with this Play-Doh. It's going to work great. This is for all of you folks who have never seen the Grand Tetons, so here I go. In fact, let me do it right here. You know, I majored in the fine arts for a while at Florida State University. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, what a representation of the Grand Tetons. <laughs> You're going, Ed? I think you've sipped too much Starbucks this morning. 
give me a break. You, you, cannot, you cannot even attempt to mirror the majesty of the Grand Tetons with Play-Doh. So go ahead and put the Play-Doh back in the canister. And children, please do not spill the Play-Doh on the carpet. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? It's kind of a stretch. Who would do that? Yet, yet, a lot of us play the same games and do the same thing with God. We take objects, we take thoughts, we take things, and we kind of take our hands out and do the Play-Doh deal, and we try to mirror and make the majesty of God. God saying, put your Play-Doh away. Put some of your presuppositions away. Put some of your images away. Put some of your objects away because these fall miserably short of the true image and character of our God. You know, the crucifix has been a symbol for millions and millions of Christians down through the ages. People love to wear the crucifix. And the crucifix is a beautiful piece of jewelry. However, it falls miserably short of communicating the true focus of Christianity. The crucifix is a cross with Jesus hanging there, his head down, his body limp. It shows us that Christ died on the cross for our sins, yet it leaves Jesus on the cross. It doesn't communicate the fact that Christ was buried for three days and rose again. It doesn't communicate the fact that Christ is ruling and reigning in heaven. It doesn't communicate the fact that he's a constant companion, that he's here with us, that he's leading us and guiding us and showing us the way. Oh, no, 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 no. The crucifix falls miserably short of mirroring the majesty of our maker. Anything we make, mold, or imagine that attempts to communicate the true essence and nature of God is coming dangerously close to breaking the second commandment. Because image is everything. Image is everything. God's chosen people, the Israelites, didn't get into trouble when they worshipped in the temple. They got into trouble when they began to worship the temple. The 6th century Christians didn't mess up with the second commandment when they had statues and ornaments and decorations in their churches. They broke the second commandment when they began to worship the statues and the ornaments and the decorations. Don't you see? It's so easy, isn't it? To try to make something or mold something or imagine something that mimics and reflects the image of God. It doesn't really work. Yet in our finiteness, in our humanity, we want something we can touch and, and, and feel and, and experience. I love photo albums. I mean, I really like to thumb through album after album. And if you ever come to our house, man, we've got photo albums dedicated to each child. I've even got a photo album dedicated to all the fish I've caught. We love photo albums, and I'm sure you have photo albums because those photo albums capture those Kodak moments, you know. <laughs> but something bugs me about a photo album. I hate incomplete photo albums, and we have a couple at our house. But it's our desire 
to take a bunch more pictures and fill them up, to have those photo albums that are packed. But don't you know you're kind of looking through a photo album and two or three pages are looking good and sweet and fine, and all of a sudden it's just blank? It's that sticky paper stuff you're going, ugh. In a real way, large blocks of us are carrying around incomplete mental photo albums of the image of God. And some of us are carrying these images in our minds that someone gave us a year ago, five years ago, 15 years ago. And some of us are carrying around one-dimensional, blurry, black and white pictures of God. And we think that's the true essence and nature of God. We think that's His majesty, and we really think, oh, that is God, that is God, that is God. However, some of these images that we've carried around, that I've even carried around years ago, come dangerously close to the warning track of our lives. They come dangerously close to breaking the second commandment. Because I'll say it one more time, over and over again, God prohibits us from making something, molding something, or imagining something that reflects the totality of his being. Because he knows it's a formula for frustration. We cannot do it in our finiteness, in our limitations. So I want to run through some of the popular images that we have in our incomplete photo albums of God. Just, just right quick, let's just run through a couple. The first one that some of us have here of God is Grandpa God. We have this incomplete photo album, this image in our mind of good old Grandpa God. We love Grandpa God. And you see, we would rather alter God than allowing God to alter us. And Grandpa God is popular. He's forgiving. He's benign. He's kind. He's grace-driven. He's as comfortable as a lazy boy chair. That's Grandpa God. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how far you fall. Grandpa God's always going to say, come on, come here, come here. And perch us on our knee and say, it's okay. Everything's cool. I still love you. You're still great. Don't worry about it. Just, just, just get up there and live life. Grandpa God. Very popular, might I add. Some of us have another image of God in this incomplete photo album. Candyland God. You remember Candyland, that game? I still play that with my kids. It's a classic game. But the Candyland God is an image of God in heaven, just, just, just pouring out blessings and giving us all of this stuff. And this perpetuates a lot of the televangelists you see. This erroneous doctrine that God is this candy man, and all you got to do is have faith because God wants you to be rich. He can't wait to give you boatloads of cash, money, and a Mercedes Benz. God wants that for you. Just have faith and, and, and give me the money, they say. The candy God can. The candy God can because he mixes it with love and wants everyone to be rich. We have another image of God, the man upstairs God. Now that's a popular one there. You know, the man upstairs, my buddy, the God that kind of hangs out, the God that's ready to come bounding down the staircase of heaven when I give him a 911 call during my microwave prayer. God, I need you. God, I'm in trouble. God, I've been left in the lurch. God, please come and rescue me. Take care of me. God, come on, come on, God, come on, God. And we love to have this detached deity, this sequestered Savior up there, don't we? 
There's still another image we carry around in our incomplete photo albums. The Supreme Court God. The Supreme Court God has that long, black, flowing robe, carries around a 40-pound gavel, just waiting for you and me to come up on the radar screen of rebellion. He just cannot wait. He cannot wait to lift this gavel up and go, Guilty, guilty, guilty. You are punished. You messed up. I will discipline you. Let me bring up one more image that we carry around, then we'll move to something else. A lot of us carry around a picture of God, an image of God as the emotional God. God's this emotional God. And you say to yourself, you know, I haven't really worshipped, I haven't really met with God unless I've had a tear run down my cheek or a lump in my throat or a chill down my spine. You know, I've got to feel him. You know, I've, 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 I've got to have some kind of a knowledge, you know, in my senses that I've been with God. Whoa, God's an emotional God. That's the picture I have. A great degree, of, for, for a large part of us, we get these images of God from our parents. If you grew up in a home that was pretty much guardrail and guideline free, you see God like that. Just, hey man, everything's okay. Don't worry about it. Your language, hey. The places you go, no problem. Immoral lifestyle, uh, no way, man. Guardrail and guideline-free God. We love to have God we can control and alter. And if we grew up in homes like that, we think of God like that. Conversely, if we grew up in homes where everything was legalistic and ritualistic and all these rules and regulations, we see God like that. Yes. Yes. Yes, God does have grandfatherly characteristics. He does forgive. He does forget. He does perch you and me on his knee when we've messed up, when we've fallen into the seas of sin and says, it's going to be okay. I forgive you. Come clean. I receive you and welcome you. Yes, God does have grandfatherly characteristics. God also is a God who blesses us. He really does. And I know people, he's blessed in incredible ways, some even financially, some even materialistically. Yes, God blesses that way, but more often than not, God blesses us in ways that money and things and possessions can't even touch. But yes, God is the one who gives. God's also the one who's ready for our 911 prayers, who's ready to rescue us, who's ready to come into the situation when we've had a death in the family. Or we're coming across a career move, or a marital problem, or we've fallen into deep depths of sin. Yeah, God is ready to come down. He's ready to help. That's an aspect of God. God is also a judge. He is. And God will discipline those He loves. And God will allow us to face the consequences and the repercussions of our rebellion. God is that way. God's also a God of emotions. And we're going to see that in a couple of moments. God gets angry. God gets sad. 
He even gets jealous. So we serve a 3D God, a multifaceted and multidimensional God. Don't ever make the mistake of carrying around just one or two pictures of God. And here's what our agenda is at the Fellowship Church. People ask us all the time, now what are you about? What's your focus? You know one of our major focuses happens to be? is to give all of you a packed photo album of God. We want you to understand the totality of His being. And let me show you how we do that just from a corporate format. The Bible says that we're to worship together regularly, intentionally, and strategically. So up here, through the music, through the drama, through videos, through the teaching, we want to give you as many snapshots of God as possible. And let me show you how we accomplish this. Beginning in August, we did a series called Corporate Makeover. For 10 weeks, we looked at what God says about work. We discovered that God thought work up and work is a blessing. That we're made in the image of God and we're made to work. And our work, check this out now, can become an act of worship. Isn't that cool? I don't care what you do. I don't care how menial you think it is or how big you think it is. Your worship can happen in the marketplace. From there, we went into a series on the local church. I mean, there is no doubt about it. God is so crystal clear on this one. That entity, which is most near and dear to the heart of God, is the local church. Look around, the local church. This is where God's going to deal and move in a supernatural way. And we discovered that God is a strategist behind the church. From On Purpose, we moved to another series, a real popular one. With Y2K looming on the horizon, we talked about the end. For three weeks, we saw how God is the author and the perfecter and the finisher of our faith. We saw how God is in control, that we've read the last page. And we've seen the genius and the nature of God as it results in pointing to the final days on this planet. From there, we jumped into a highly controversial series called The Untouchables. We talked about abortion and homosexuality and racism. In that series, we saw the Lord himself standing with love standing with grace, but standing firm in the seas of relativism. We saw what the Bible says about these issues against the backdrop of all of the rhetoric and the political spin doctors and pundits out there. And in this series, called First and Ten, we're going to see the genius of our Father God, of all of the parameters and the principles and, and, and the guardrails that He gives us for successful living. Don't you see the different pictures and images of God that you've gotten here since August? I've not even touched on our first Wednesday corporate worship. I've not even talked to you about the connection classes, the commitment classes, and the home teams. I've not even gone to the women's ministry and the men's ministry. I've not even told you about children's church and preschool. Everything we do here is a photo album deal. We want you to get a fully packed photo album of the nature and character of God.
That's our agenda. So that's the meaning. That's the meaning behind the second commandment. Now let's go to the mentality. What was God thinking about when he thought this one up? What was God thinking about when he said, you shall not make for yourself a carved image? I'll tell you what was driving him. I'll tell you about his mentality. It's found in verse 5 and 6 of Exodus chapter 20. And this is going to shock you because we're going to talk about the fact that God is jealous. Let's go ahead and read it. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Let me stop right there. A jealous God. This word jealous means that God will defend and he will protect his priority, his slot in your life and mine. That's how much God loves us. Because when God sees us chasing after something else, and a lot of things can become gods in our lives, you know, our golf game, our wardrobe, our cars, our career, our money that we've made, these things can become gods or images. These things can become gods. So God will defend and protect and do whatever it takes to keep his slot reserved for him and him alone. He's a jealous God. Well, then we go into something that's real sticky. Now, when I read this next portion, and some of you have already read it, you're going, whoa. Now, okay, I can dig the fact Ed, that he's a jealous God, but, but, but this next part, now, come on, let's go ahead and read it. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Uh-oh. Some are saying, well, I'm checking out here. I'll worship another God. Thank you. Well, one more time, Ed. Now, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Well, let me continue. But, you got to love those transitional phrases. But, Showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Every time God talks firmly, he follows it up with love. But let's talk about the iniquity deal. Let's say you go see a psychologist. And I highly recommend Christian psychiatrists and psychologists. Because Christian psychiatrists and psychologists come from the authority base of the Bible. When they do so, I'm all for it. But psychologists will sit you down and they will talk to you. And they're, and they're trained to do that. Let's say I'm talking to my man, Thomas. I, I know Thomas right there. Thomas Cross. Right, raise your hand, Thomas. Thomas is a good friend of mine. I've been here a long time, so I can pick on him. I will not embarrass him. You know, I wouldn't embarrass anybody here. Let's say I'm a psychologist, and I'm talking to Thomas. Okay, Thomas, ha, <laughs> okay, all right, yeah. You played pro basketball, and you've done this, and you've done that. You've been in New York, da, 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 da. Well, Thomas, uh, let me talk to you about your past. Hmm. Your family of origin, your grandparents, maybe some other people way back there in your past, Thomas, who influenced you because in a real way, Thomas, you are who your parents and your grandparents and your great-great-grandparents were. What am I doing? I'm involving him in psychotherapy because psychotherapy says all of us, to a large extent, are kind of wired up the way the people were in our past. This is no new deal. God said this three or 4,000 years ago. And here's the great thing about this text. I'll run through it one more time. For I, 
The Lord your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Yeah, I've got tendencies, and you have tendencies that have been given to me synthetically from my parents, great-grandparents, and great-great-grandparents. Well, the good news is you can and I can break the power, break the cycle of sin. Because we all have unique tendencies that others don't have. Some of us here have a tendency to fall into exaggeration and lying. Others of us have a tendency to fall into lust and promiscuity. Others have a tendency to fall into materialism. It's about time to stand and break the cycle of sin. You say to yourself, why do I do this? Why do I have this tendency? You were born a sinner. You were born with the bents. But some of it too, this tendency, this destructive habit and sin pattern came to you from your parents, grandparents, great, great, great grandparents. That's why Jesus said, as we talked about last week in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's why God said at the conclusion of the fifth verse here in Exodus chapter 20, he said, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So if we love God, we're going to keep his commandments. We're going to break these negative cycles of sin. Let me, let me give you one sidebar right quick, one caveat. We've been talking about worship, haven't we? Sometimes, and, and, and listen to me now, follow me, sometimes Christ's followers can get so into the methodology of worship that we begin to worship the methods instead of the God behind the methods. We begin to worship the way we worship instead of the God of worship. Case in point would be years ago, a lot of people in churches couldn't read. They, they, they just could not read. So the church came up with liturgy. And in liturgy was thought up so people could memorize scripture because they couldn't read and liturgy worked. But after a while, the Christians began to worship liturgy. They said, if we don't have liturgy, we can't really worship God. I thought the others would say, well, I can't really worship unless I've had communion. I mean, I've got to have communion to worship. I ask you, where in the Bible does it say that we're to have communion every time we worship? Well, I think it's, uh, it, it might be, uh, it's not in the book. Jesus has told us time and time again to go through communion regularly. And we think communion should be practiced regularly. That's why we do it here once a month during our midweek, first Wednesday service. But you don't have to have communion to worship. Others say, oh, Ed, I've got to have the icons of Christianity to worship. I've got to have the stained glass, the crosses. I've got to have those icons everywhere. If I don't have the icons, man, that's not really true worship. Or I've got to stay in this denomination or that denomination, or I can't really worship. You don't have to have gear to worship God. Those icons are great and wonderful. But you see how they can go dangerously close to the warning tracks? of your life and mine, they can become the objects of our worship. We can break the second commandment over this deal. Still others say, well, I've not really worshiped unless I've been able to kneel. 
Or I've not really worshipped unless I've sung the great hymns of the church. I've not really worshipped unless I've lifted my hands. All those things are great, but that does not constitute worship. And sometimes we worship the way we worship at the expense of the true God of worship. Let me show you something I did as a uh, third grader. I think you'll like this. When I was in the third grade, you know, my dad's a pastor, grew up in the church. One day I was in the third grade, after church. People were kind of milling around talking. Here's what I did. Down. Sit. Everybody said, look at that go, man, he's fast. He can run. All of a sudden, bam, the church lady. Stood up right here. Young man, your father is the pastor. Do you realize you're running in God's house? I cannot believe it. Where's your mom and dad? <laughs> Let me say something right up front. We are to reverence the church. We're to take care of the church. We're not to trash it. But what she said was wrong. This is not God's house. God does not live in this house. A lot of us would love to say, oh, this is God's house. This is where he resides because God's comfortable that way. We could visit him every other week. We keep him in the confines of the church. We want God in this house and we don't want him to invade our house. We want to alter God instead of letting God alter us. Don't you see how so many things can cause us to break this second commandment? It is fascinating. I mean, when I read it a couple of weeks ago, I'm thinking to myself, well, boy, this is going to be a tough one. Carving up something, melting down something, we don't go there. But when you think about it and pray about it and study it, wow. So we've seen the meaning. I'm out of breath. The mentality. And now let's look at the implications of this. Let's look at the worship aspect of it because we've been hitting on worship and worship and worship. What are the implications? How do I worship God as God? How do I prioritize God as God? How do I never ever fall into the trap of making something, molding something, or imagining something that attempts to mirror the majesty of my maker? How do I do it in a God-ordained way? Two quick ways. Number one, prepare for worship. Prepare for worship. We're challenged to come to worship weekly and regularly. We're challenged to orbit our schedules around the schedule of the local church. And I sometimes laugh when people say, well, that does not fit my schedule. Oh, really? Since, since, since when do I impose my schedule on God's church? And we try to facilitate your schedules as much as possible by having a Saturday night service and Sunday service and our midweek service once a month and all those different things. But we got to say, okay, God, you're God. You alter me. I want to alter my agenda, my schedule around what you want for me. And I've got to prepare for worship. That means I need to prepare, like I prepare for a concert or a movie or maybe a game or something like that. I've got to prepare for it. I've got to get ready. 
I've got to get up early and I need to be on time. And yeah, we're going to have some traffic challenges here. That's why in the next three months we will have a brand new parking lot with a thousand more spaces. We're building two roads to get in and out of this place. It'll be wonderful. The traffic problems will kind of say, buh bye They'll be gone. But I've got to get up early and go to the fellowship church, and that's a great thing. God's doing wonderful things here. That means I'm up early, I'm ready to go. I'm getting prepared. Well, how do I prepare even in a practical way? I challenge you to do this. Pray. Pray. Before you show up on the weekend, pray. Pray for your own life. Just say, God, I know you have something awesome to say to me. It could be during the opening song. It could be through a drama. It could be through a video. It could be through something the teacher said. God, I know you have something great for me to hear and to apply and to do. I'll never forget a couple of months ago. I was dealing with something in my life. And I walked in and the first song that our worship team did just, just, just cut me like a knife. I just started whipping, saying, God, you are so real. God, you are so right. Thank you, God. So it could be through a number of things. Pray for yourself. Also, pray for others. Many, many people who show up here are dealing with some serious, soulish issues. Many people here are in the deep weeds. They're struggling with real issues. Pray for them. After you pray for yourself, pray for them. Pray for many to establish a personal relationship with Christ. Pray for many in their marriages, with family situations. Pray for many who need a healing. Pray for people. This is before you get to church. If you look through the book of Psalms, it's right in the middle of the Bible. You don't have to turn there right now. You'll see under Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, this, this, this is a little phrase, a psalm of ascent, A-S-C-E-N-T. And here's, here's the picture behind it. When the children of Israel would go up to the temple once a year for the Passover deal, they had to kind of you know, do an incline. And while they were doing an incline, they would take Psalms, Psalm 120 through 134, and they would sing these songs of ascent while they were going up to the temple, they would sing to prepare their hearts and prepare their lives for worship. Another way we prepare is we unplug, we disengage, we get rid of, you know, the beepers and the alarm watches because we're worshiping God. We don't want to do anything that would disturb God. But a lot of us here have a constant companion. We take this companion with us wherever we go. It's huge to us. We take it on trips and everywhere. And a couple of weeks ago, I had lunch with a pastor friend of mine. And as we sat down, he put this cell phone in between us. And he spent a bunch of time just zing, talking on the cell phone. Excuse me, Ed. Okay, yeah. Anyway, Ed. About the fellowship church I've heard. Oh, excuse me one second. I can't talk to you right now, okay? You have to take care of the dog yourself, okay? <laughs> it kept going on and on. I have a cell phone. They're great. I'm all for technology, but, but, but let's, let, let's think about it for a second. I don't know about you, but I have, I, okay, I've had maybe two phone calls in my life that were important enough for me to lug around a cell phone out to eat with someone. Now, if, I'll tell you what I do. You can bring your cell phone here and have the ringer on if Bill Gates is going to call you. Because if Bill Gates wants to call you, I'd love to talk to him too. <laughs> but other than that, 
or Billy Graham better than that. Billy Graham calling you, you just have your cell phone on. We'll just take the cell phone and let Billy Graham talk with the microphone right here. But other than that, <laughs> in a preparation way, just take your cell phone and turn off the ringer. Better yet, just leave it in your car when you go to church. And try it when you meet with people. Because it'll, it'll really help. But we love these cell phones, don't we? Cell phones. Prepare for worship. Pray, be on time, and disengage, and unplug, and get your heart right for worship. Also, there's another thing I want you to do. Participate in it. Participate in worship. It, 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 it's all in the way we sit. It's in the way we listen. It's in the way we sing. It's in the way we take notes. I challenge you to take notes. I remember, and so do you. Studies have shown this much more when we write stuff down. Keep it in a file, in a notebook. It'll help fill out your photo album with God. When you're singing, sing to God. It was kind of funny. Last weekend, I was, I was hanging over the rail right there and just watching people during the worship songs, you know. And some of these people I've known for years, and you've been Christians for a long time. And you were singing songs like this. You are like singing, He will deliver me. My God will set me free. Faithful, deliver me. <laughs> I was supposed to scoot in now, Rob. Thanks. Okay. Oh, he will deliver me. If you know Christ personally, you need to sing because if Christ has saved you and bought you with the price, if he's living inside your life, if he's guiding you and giving you direction and meaning and purpose, you've got to sing. I don't care if you're tone deaf. You've got to sing to him. Now, if you're not a believer, you don't have to sing. We're not going to force you to sing. But if you're a Christ follower, man, sing. Sing about what God's done. Sing that he is a deliverer, that God is faithful. Sing about that. Be on point. Get ready to listen. Listening is not just hearing. It's taking the words and applying them to your life. Participate in worship. Get ready for it. Get engaged in it. Get involved in it. Over the Christmas holidays, my family and I traveled to Columbia, South Carolina. While we were there, I was hanging out with my nephews, and one of my nephews plays football for this great Christian school called Ben Lippin Academy. And he was showing me this video montage of their, their team. He was just like a wide receiver and all that. And I was watching this thing, and it was really well done. It's kind of like the NFL thing, film things. I mean, it was, it was a great deal. Well, the team did something that, that really struck a chord in my spirit before every game. And this, this video showed this. They would all get together and put their hands together. You know how teams will do around, around the coach? And here's what they said all together. One, two, three. Audience of one, yeah! And they hit the field. And I said, Stephen, now what, what were they saying? He said, let me replay it for you. Audience of one, yeah! He said, Ed, as Christians, we feel like we're the players and we're playing for an audience of one. We're playing for God. Whoa, man, that's strong stuff. <laughs> so check this out now. When we come to church... If we know Jesus personally, we are the players. 
We're playing. We're worshiping for an audience of one. Not for your neighbor, not for me, not for some group, for an audience of one. So when we think about the second commandment, image is everything. The ultimate image, the panoramic image, the packed photo album image of our great God. Our great and awesome God. Thank you for listening and thanks to all who give so generously to this ministry. It's because of you that we can continue this show and equip people with the hope of heaven. You can click the link in the description to support the show or visit edyoung.com. There you can also be resourced with bonus content for free, including a daily devotional. We also encourage you to share the message today with those around you. Thank you again for listening. God bless. God bless.